They exist among us, and sometimes they win. Even the devil was an angel once. The world has its own rules, and these rules are not human. Some of us seek answers to the origin and existence of cryptids and the unexplained. Join us as we venture beyond the known and accepted boundaries. Welcome to our nightmare. I think you're going to like it. Hey folks, good evening and welcome to another episode of Phantoms of Monsters Radio where we explore the strange and the unexplained. I'm your host, Lon Strickler. Thanks for joining us. Now, if you enjoy our content, then please subscribe, like, and share our presentations. Uh, Super Chat is active during the show, so please show your support for Fans of Monsters Radio by clicking the uh, dollar icon under the chat. You can also support the channel by using uh, the Buy Me a Coffee link or banner in the description of below or up in the uh, top of the um, the top banner of the website. Uh, your consideration is very much needed and appreciated. So tonight, before I introduce tonight's guest, we're going to do something a little bit different. Uh, we're going to have an opening party, if you want to call it that. That's what it was told to me what it was. But uh, And this is going to be to present my order of original prints from our friend, artist, Sam Sheeran. Uh, you know, I was hooked on Sam's work ever since I saw his amazing cover work uh, that had you know, been used on many of David Weatherly's books. And when Sam created the Chicago Mothman piece, well, you know, I had to have one. So um, I'm going to have one. I'm going to put it up on my wall. And I plan to display much of Sam's art in the future. So um, now you can order at uh, his website, which is MrSamSheeran.com. He has also started a YouTube channel where he, you can observe Sam create his art. And his channel is featured on the uh, Phantoms of Monsters Radio YouTube channel page. So without further ado, I hope I don't cut myself. We're going to... Um, we're going to open this up Packed very nicely. Wow, Sam, nothing was going to happen to this. <sighs> well packed. Ones, a few extra ones in there, I think. Right on top. Mothman. Beautiful. Uh, 
the sizes of these prints are 12 by 17 with the, uh, I think it's about an inch border on there, somewhere like that. And it's hand signed at the bottom. Excellent. I think this was designed, was also used on um, one of the advertising flyers that uh, the small town monsters used in their movie. Ooh, what is this? Now, this is an interesting one. Maybe Vincent can look onto the website and tell me what the uh, what the uh, name of the print is. But it's uh, this may be the Vietnamese Batwoman or the Vietnamese flying humanoid. Uh, you all don't know that story. Uh, during the Vietnam War, soldiers saw something that they, that's what they called the Vietnamese or the uh, flying humanoid. So that's cool. Then we have the Point Pleasant Moth, man. You can see the silver bridge in the background. Very nice. Boy, Sam does, Sam does a great job on this stuff. Very detailed, too. <laughs> and we had the Lawndale Thunderbird abduction. Uh, Lawndale, Illinois. <laughs> Very cool. And we have another Mothman from Point Pleasant. Now, Sam's got all these prints and many more up on his website. Again, it's MrSamSheeran.com. So it's like a pterodon. Pretty neat. Excellent. That's so cool. Should know what this is. Oh, is this the um, is this the Van Meter visitor? I think it is from Van Meter, Iowa. The book that was written by Chad Lewis. Very cool. Now here's a new one by Sam. He just did this about a month or so ago. I'm glad he threw it in here. He. Uh, the Fresno Nightwalker, or he calls it the Night Strider. That's pretty. That's pretty good. That goes right along with my uh, meme humanoid book. I'm glad he did a rendering of this. And of course, another part of the book included the um, the Dover Demon. I wrote a bit about that as well. So, uh, yeah, folks, if you uh, if you want your own print, go in there look at the um, look at the variety he has. Uh, he also has done some uh, zodiac figures and a few other well known cryptids, maybe a few other not so well known cryptids, but uh, very very cool. Oh, yeah. Hold on, I'm gonna put these. I don't want to bend them up, so I'm gonna go ahead and put them back in. 
But I plan on continuing to uh, bring his art. We're all, in, you know, when the holidays come up, every year Sam puts out a uh, a, uh, a set of greeting cards, which are so cool. We uh, we purchased them last year and handed them out to associates and friends, and they were very much appreciated. So um, Sam, a great again, great work. Uh, I, I am so glad to have you associated with us and I'm going to start putting them up behind me here when I get them, get them framed out. So again, that's, uh, Mr. Sam Sheeran.com and, uh, go to the website and, uh, look it over. It's a cool website, very easy to order. And, uh, I'm sure you'll find something there you like. So, tonight's guest is Daniel Allen Jones, who is the host and producer of The Vortex, a show that explores the mysteries of the world and beyond. Daniel has been researching unexplained phenomena for over a decade and has investigated strange sites, conducted numerous interviews, and provided media coverage for several events. The online groups he manages, including both the Texas UFO Network, the Texas Cryptozoology Network, and others. Daniel took part in the 2021 Trinity Giant Salamander Expedition in search of the elusive cryptid purported to exist in Pacific Northwest, while also visiting the Patterson-Gimlin film site at, in Bluff Creek, California. He is a professional musician who plays and teaches drums around the Dallas-Fort Worth Metroplex. His newest book, Aurora, 125 Years of UFOs, Aliens, and a Texas Legend from 1897, chronicles over a century of UFO sightings and alien encounters in Texas. And we are going to be talking about that tonight. And Daniel, thanks for joining me. Hey, Lon. Good to be here. It's uh, an honor to be able to join you and uh, be on the show. I'm uh, excited to be able to share a little bit about Aurora, and I'm sure a lot of the guests who tune in frequently are familiar with this case. But you know, I'm I'm looking forward to sharing it because of this anniversary here at the you know 125th anniversary is a, a great way to kind of celebrate and acknowledge uh, and chronicle this interesting case throughout the years. And I'm really glad you also did a, a really cool tribute and uh, you know opening of Sam's work. I'm a big fan of Sam's as well, which is really cool that uh, you got to open up some of those prints there. He actually inspired me to do the artwork for the piece that you're seeing here on the screen because I really think that his hyper-realism, that you know, the realism to his approach is just so striking and dramatic. I thought, wow, I want to be able to, you know, you know capture just a, you know, a, a some kind of a way to show that and depict it with the Aurora incident. So here's what I threw together for the cover of the publication that I'm uh, involved with here with Aurora. And so uh, um, I'm honored to be able to be here with you, Lon, and uh, all of your listeners. Great to be here. Well, we're, we're really privileged to have you. We thank you for coming on. This, uh, this phenomena, now, you know, I had known about this for a, a while. But I guess the first time I really saw it presented was with the old UFO Hunters TV show. And uh, it's kind of a wild story. Uh, basically, a, uh, a, a UFO or craft hits a water mill and crashes into either a cemetery or a nearby cemetery. And it's actually, there was a being that was supposedly found and it's buried there. So why don't you tell us the story itself and, uh, uh, you know, what can you elaborate on that? Yeah, glad to. So what I find interesting about this case, this historic case, you know, over a century old now, is that a lot of people who I've encountered over the years, they know bits and pieces. They know this part or that part, something about the windmill or, or the grave. But there's actually a lot to the story um, and this legend that I think is really fascinating and, and how it may 
really give us an idea about what ufologists or any UFO hunters are really trying to find today. So as the story goes, in uh, the 1800s, you know, we're really told that there wasn't supposed to be anything up in the sky, um, nothing really known to be flying around uh, by conventional standards. And the, the Wright brothers really didn't come into the scene until 1903 with the flyer, right? So mm -hmm. it's really interesting to consider that anything would have been up in the sky, uh, much less crashing down and, and all of this. So it seems like there are some interesting groups, mm -hmm. maybe producing these secret inventions some t uh, you know some people describe this group called nimza or the sonora aero club um, which may have been a, a group of you know elite engineers or inventors who were trying to come up with ways to make lighter than air craft and i think that there could be something to that although this particular story with aurora depicts something a little bit more uh inhuman and i think that that's a really an interesting concept because when we're dealing with the late 19th century and getting into what seems to be the case with uh, early aviation, uh, it's something that it makes us wonder what would have been possible for any of these types of uh, hot air balloons, these dirigibles, these blimps, these zephyrs, zeppelins, whatever might have been actually around, um, and how that could be different than what this story is about. So getting into the late 1800s, into the 18. Uh, 70s, really, 1870s, 80s, and 90s, you start having what are known as airships appear. And I'll mention this quickly because I think it's an mm -hmm. important part about what we're dealing with even today. You know, uh, we just had the uh, anniversary of Kenneth Arnold's sighting up in Mount Rainier, Washington, of these crescent-shaped objects, which he described moved in a saucer-type pattern. And that got spun in the media to what we now have is the trope of flying saucers. So it's really interesting to consider is that while he was not describing the orientation or shape of these objects, these unknown aerial phenomena that he witnessed, but this is something that pretty much got uh, it stuck and we call these things flying saucers. But back in 1878 in Denison, Texas, up by the Red River, by the border of Texas and Oklahoma, you have a farmer who describes something that he saw, which actually looked like a flying saucer. And so here in Texas, maybe we can claim stake to having been, you know, the first to attribute that name to the shape of a craft rather than its motion or movement. So I thought that was an interesting part about, uh, you know, UFO history going back before modern aviation. But even beyond that, here in Texas, you have all kinds of mystery lights and things like in Marfa or the Saratoga light, which are very mysterious, but these don't seem to be articulated craft. So getting past some of these interesting mystery lights or orbs later in you have the 1890s and 1896 1897 you have what was known as the great aerial wanderer or the great airship mystery and a lot has been written about these cases but i think one that stands out probably the most out of all of them perhaps if not the single most important airship mystery is the as you can see the aurora ufo crash of 1897 now this is an interesting story because there's a lot of uh, confusion about the origins and really how this got spread around, or if there's any validity to it, if it was all a hoax or if it's the real deal. And, you know, it's very interesting. Uh, of course, I wasn't there and no one who was there is alive now. So it's really hard to track down some of these types of uh, things to really pinpoint what was going on. But having spent a great deal of time with my buddy, the late Jim Mars, I think it's really important to see that while he was able to talk with some people who were alive while it happened, there aren't any more today. So we can just go off of what was reported at the time, what researchers like Jim Mars had been able to track down and research. But as the story goes, uh, the early morning of April 17th in 1897, there was an object, a metallic cigar-shaped object that came down from the south that seemed to be in distress crashing down into Judge Proctor's windmill, water tower, and well, and crashed into a brilliant explosion, sending debris, apparently scattering for acres, and it destroyed his flower garden, and uh, there was a sort of a, a ruse in the town. It, it got a lot of people's attention, and they all came and wanted to check out what had happened, and so something exploded, and I think that according to the story, it got enough attention that people came from all over the area to see what happened and what this calamity must have been. Some people were deterred from coming to view and some people 
described their parents coming to see what may have been wreckage. But either way, it said that this object that was a cigar shape came crashing down into a windmill connected to a well house and water tower, exploded, and not only left a large amount of metallic debris, but they also found what seemed to be the remains of one occupant, supposedly the pilot of this craft, this airship. And what's really interesting is that the newspaper, which seemed to repeat the story, which was purported to have been written in the Aurora newspaper, which it may have not even existed, but there seems to be some discrepancy in if that one actually existed or not. But either way, it was re, uh, reproduced in the Dallas Morning News and in something called the Fort Worth Register, which basically repeated the story saying that this object crashed, the occupant was found, or at least the remains, and uh, enough of the remains which seemed to be badly disfigured enough were found to determine that it was quote, not an inhabitant of this world. Um, and I think that's such an interesting notion to consider that in 1897, anyone would have considered something like that. Um, and it's also said that TJ Weems, who they had considered a, uh, an expert in astronomy considered that this was, uh, an inhabitant of the planet Mars and that they also found papers uh, that described his travels, but the papers had strange hieroglyphic writing that he assumed maybe told about where this uh, ship had been traveling and going. And so while I think that that's a pretty fantastic tale, even more so, they gathered up the, the remains of this body and brought it down the street, literally to the local cemetery, uh, and gave it a, a formal Christian burial. And here it is uh, in this early tabloid, which, of course, admittedly, many were written to simply sell papers and write fantastic stories. But another interesting aspect of this whole tale is that it was not on the front page and it wasn't a standalone isolated incident. This was one of over a dozen airship reports in that same newspaper. You can actually see I've got a, a, a reproduction here. You can kind of tell or at least if you can make out of highlighted where the Aurora one actually is here in the middle. But the interesting thing is, is almost every other column here depicts these airship reports or mysteries from all around the state of Texas. And so while this one, I think the Aurora story stands out the most out of all of them and depicts somewhat of a more otherworldly aspect to it, many of the other airship stories depicted something more or less of a, a dirigible or something with propellers and wings um, and portholes for maybe the crew to be able to kind of uh, utilize as maybe we would see in recent airships uh, as far as, you know, a 10, 20 years afterward. And so this one seems to be something a little bit different because of the notion it has an otherworldly aspect to it. So that is the initial tale. Something crashed, apparently exploded, debris scattered everywhere. Not only did this debris go everywhere, but they gathered up, the townsfolk gathered up what they could and, discarded much of it. It was said that much of it was carried away from the town, probably on horse and carriage and buggy. Um, and then much of it was also discarded and thrown down the well, which was connected to that windmill. So mm. there are a lot of things that have happened since then, but there's a great portion from that time and the next few decades, which are very much a shadowy area that's hard to make sense of. But I managed to track down some historical records that show that there was interest before the next big step in the investigative process, which wouldn't have occurred until the 70s. So that's apparently how the initial story took place. And whether it happened or not is still widely debated even today. What part of Texas is Aurora? So Aurora is northwest of Fort Worth, about 20 minutes or so it's about an hour Oklahoma. northwest of Dallas. Okay. Not really even up toward Oklahoma. It's it's not something that, you know, uh, most people would recognize on a map because it's such a small town that you drive right through it if you didn't know where you were going. And mm -hmm. it's just 20 or so, 30 miles northwest of Fort Worth. Fort Worth is connected to the Dallas-Fort Worth Metroplex. So if you're familiar with the DFW airport, one of the mm -hmm. largest airports in the world, then it's not too far. It's within an hour drive from that airport. You know, it's interesting. Uh, now, you stated that this craft had a cigar shape to it. 
apparently the early reports claim that that's the orientation of the craft. And as far as what I could track down, that's really difficult to really make sense of where that comes from outside of the original reports uh, in mm-hmm. the Dallas Morning News, which, again, really just repeated a story. It said it got from the Aurora newspaper. Okay. Interesting. Because I have had reports in the past uh, of sightings north of Dallas, northwest of Dallas, up into um, uh, up into Oklahoma of of uh, these uh, cigar-shaped craft. Uh, well, mostly the past 30 years. I'm just wondering if there have been other sightings of something similar to that or something similar to what you're describing. Right. Well, I think so. Um, there are a lot of, uh, or at least a, a few decent statistical analysis of whatever types of orientation or shapes that UFOs have been reported in, um, and in various organizations and independent researchers. MUFON would be one of them. MUFON has attempted to really make sense of this case over the years. And I think that it's one of those that, uh, you know, if you look back at some of the original um, investigation reports and those done by John Schusler, they really tried to make sense of not only the historical record, but also what was still obtainable in the field going out to the property and location, which I've been mm-hmm. on a number of, of times now. And I think that with other than the word of mouth and the story in the newspaper and the anecdotes that you have there, there seems to be some kind of indication that metallic debris seems to have uh, been embedded not only in the ground and trees, but maybe even within the grave as well. So I think that if you look at this story and its full capacity, but you also look at the array of reports throughout the last century, perhaps just in the state of Texas, uh, you have a lot of different shapes. You have, I think the most recent flap of uh, a sighting is sometimes we say in the, the field of ufology is that of the Stephenville incident back in 2008, right. where an enormous, what uh, my buddy Steve Hudgens would say, a flying Walmart came through um, to basically, you know, everyone's surprise. And I don't know that it was necessarily the same as what we think may have happened in Aurora, but something seems to garner the interest of the local air base and enough to send up some F-16s. And I think that's one of the interesting things that we can see is a a much more modern case. But throughout the years, there are definitely a number of uh, UFO encounters, reports, stories and experiences from, you know, many different angles. And I think that it's really important to see now that we have radar, um, you have all these different ways to detect aerial phenomena outside of word of mouth. It gives much more credence to these historical cases where there wasn't really any technological sophistication to allow for such an investigation to be done. What's really interesting, though, is that throughout the years, after a number of, of years, actually, up into the 40s, a new family moved onto that property, having no idea and would describe uh, troves of people coming up and wanting to ask about the alien spaceship and the crash and all these things. And to which they're surprised they really didn't know anything. And they learned inadvertently because of these people, they actually, it seems, took whatever debris and metal was in the well out and used the well for drinking and drinking water and things for a number of years, about another decade. And the unfortunate thing is, is that later on, they attribute a lot of their health defects and maladies to having drank this water, which they described was poisoned uh, by that alien in his spaceship. And there we have, there's Brawley Oates from the Oates family as he appeared in 1973, which is when the the next investigation would have taken place. And you have uh, aviation writer for the Dallas Morning News, as well as the MUFON coordinator bill case who went mm-hmm. in 73 along with jim mars and a number of other people from the international ufo bureau and mufon to try to make sense of what happened there even at that point many decades earlier um, and at that point they found the headstone they attempted to locate the original headstone which is uh, a really interesting notion today uh, but the original headstone seems to be a broken portion of stone that has an etching of some kind of shape that Jim suspected if you had another mirroring image part to the stone that you would see a full possible cylindrical shape that could have, be, uh, could have been a depiction of the original craft. And right. the interesting thing is, is that 
Hayden Hughes with the International UFO Bureau and a number of other investigators who came ready to try to, you know, understand what's going on with this case, this historic case, ready to dig up what could have been that alien grave. They tried to take all the legal steps necessary to exhume the body. And I know this is a, a big part about what is often asked when we're dealing with this case, the Aurora legend. Why is it someone dug up that body? Well, apparently now half a century ago, there was an attempt to do so legally, but the Aurora Cemetery Association threatened to counter anyone who came digging with a lawsuit saying that, number one, we don't want anyone to uh, accidentally dig up grandma and we don't want to bring up any hazardous um, you know, diseases back because unfortunately they had a bad fever right before all of this. And not to mention that kind of putting things into context, Aurora at the time had a number of saloons. It was sort of a, you know, up and come town, but the railroad passed it. And so everyone was hoping that maybe they'd have some, you know, a boost in the economy, but because it passed the town, it became somewhat of a ghost town. And a lot of people were dying because of this disease. So one of the biggest reasons why people considered that the Aurora legend was a hoax was because they wanted to boost tourism, boost the economy, get people, you know, back into Aurora and get things up and running again. And I think that that's really an interesting idea to concoct a story of an otherworldly being in order mm. to, you know, in an attempt to boost the town. Why not say we struck gold or better yet, we're in Texas, we struck oil, you know, but no, an alien and its spaceship. And technically they didn't even say alien. They just said a, uh, you know, a Martian. So, you know, one of the, the interesting tropes that I've looked into when researching this topic is that of the what we call the little green men, which has been used as a way to discredit early ufologists and UFO researchers and, and anyone who's looking into this for decades. Right. But the interesting thing is just that little green men had been used for uh, a long time before its association in the early 1900s with mm -hmm. extraterrestrial life and Martians. But the closest relation we have is that this guy named tj williams said that it was a martian to his understanding which you know that could have totally been made up as well so because of how the grave situation became a focal point for investigators all the way down into the 70s it became such a sensation that newspapers were spinning it with headlines and just garnering the interests of people all around and once again probably for the better part of selling tabloids and newspapers and write-ups um, interestingly enough, as ironic as that sounds, it really um, showcased the division of the town and of people in the community itself trying to make sense if this happened or it didn't happen. They were there, they weren't, or they were, it happened, or they were, and it didn't happen. And so even throughout the, the, the 60s and 70s, um, past the advent of Project Blue Book, um, which apparently there does seem to be some indication that people posing as government agents had come into the town as early as the 50s and 60s to intimidate people and inquire about the metallic debris that people had been keeping in shoe boxes and things like this. So um, that's very speculative, but apparently there does seem to be some, some rumored uh, indication that that had happened and maybe an association with Blue Book um, mm -hmm. early on, you know, with uh, Dr. Jalen Hynek and the, the Air Force's early attempt at uh, maybe not only discrediting the UFO issue, but also maybe misdirecting it overall. The interesting thing with all of this is that soon after this initial investigation, the cemetery declining any attempt at exhuming the supposed extraterrestrial body, they put on a cemetery watch for a few weeks, which kept anyone, barring anyone out of the cemetery. But as soon as that watch ended, the gravestone went missing and three drill hole marks were found in the grave. And when Jim Mars asked his buddy, Bill Case, what he thought, who he thought did it, he said, the government. And unfortunately, Bill passed away a year after that. And just a few years later, in 76, a historical marker was erected there at the cemetery, which is still there today. Hmm. Um, now, more recently, has there been any tangible evidence found other, you know, other than anecdotal evidence, uh, anything tangible have been uncovered? Well, I think that because of how much interest this was able to produce and generate and really grab people's attention from that initial investigation, 
um, that interest never died down, maybe here and there, but going into the 80s, it even got enough attention for a, a B or even C film to be made called The Aurora Encounter. Um, what mm -hmm. I think is really interesting about this is that getting into more recent times, um, while that movie was just a, a fun and more fictionalized portrayal of the alien not just crashing and, and dying and exploding, um, but that this being got out and walked around and wandered the town and, and interacted and mingled with townsfolk and it had special abilities. Um, and I'll just mention quickly that the actor who played the alien, as you can see here in the picture, his name was Mickey Hayes and he had progeria, which, uh, you know, was this sort of oh, disfiguring condition, right. which a lot of people had wondered why they would make him play an alien. That seems so disrespectful. But in reality, Mickey, as a, a, a young man, actually just a boy at the time, his wish for the sort of, uh, you know, Make-A-Wish Foundation was to play in a Hollywood movie. And so probably because of the, you know, trying to ride on the tail end success of the E.T. movie, which had come out just prior, um, this Aurora Encounter movie, I think, helped to inspire this. Jack Elam's probably the most well-known star of that movie as well. And, uh, mm -hmm. and so this is something I think that continued to generate interest up into the 90s. And I'll just mention this because the 90s really presented ufology with a number of other prevalent cases that I think are really important to consider because of how it relates back to investigating all older historical cases in a way that maybe wasn't available at the time, especially, you know, before the you know 20th century. And so what's more relevant with this now and getting up into the modern time frame is that the, the 100th anniversary of the Aurora legend would have been 1997. Ironically, it would have been the, the 50th anniversary at the same time of the Roswell incident. So Roswell happened 50 years later. And we know, and many of the, the people tuning in are probably well familiar with the scrutiny that's gone in to the Roswell investigation, even on an official level and all the different explanations that have been considered. And, uh, and so the level of ridicule is very real when it comes to investigating these types of cases. And also in 97, you had the Phoenix Lights incident, which a lot of people still find to be very, um, very much a, a prevalent case in ufology. So at the 100th anniversary marker, not only was Jim Mars still very interested in pursuing this case, but a num number of other investigators took the time to look into it and produce some early documentaries and work that showed that there could be some uh, leads to follow up with people describing having bits of the metal, still finding parts of metal embedded in trees and things. And so in the following years, uh, the History Channel actually came out and began an investigation. It was a few years after the 100th anniversary and in an attempt to also commemorate that, they tried to get access to the property in which the crash was said to have happened, where the windmill would have been, where the well actually is and is still today. When mm -hmm. the History Channel originally came onto the property, they were not granted access to the well. But a few years later on another show that they had going, the UFO Hunters, they did get access, and so they tried to find what they could by unsealing the well, which the Oates family had been using uh, for decades earlier, but they had since sealed it up, and so they removed the well house, they removed the seal, they sent Pat Uskert, one of the hosts on the UFO Hunters, down there to ascertain the fate of that mystery metal, um, to which, unfortunately, he did not find any other than mm. a snake which had sort of fallen in. Um, they didn't really find any su substantial metal in the well, but they did go over down the street, literally not even a mile away, to the cemetery and do some ground-penetrating radar over the gravesite. Not only did they find what seemed to be metallic alloy, probably at some point in a molten state, hardened and embedded in the ground and in the trees nearby, but they found what was uh, some kind of indication of a small child-sized grave at the location of the gravesite. And so while they weren't able to really figure out what the contents of that container or grave might have been, they did seem to think that there was good indication that something was down there. And so because of that, that's probably the best 
credence given to that there being something having had happened or maybe an explosion mm -hmm. of some sort and that there is still maybe good reason to look into this historic case. I think that if you look at to what's gone on in more recent years, you know, going throughout the uh, more recent last decade, actually, um, in the time frame in which I was more readily involved, my, my buddy Jim took me out to the side on a number of times. We got to the point where we said, let's approach the city and see if we can commemorate this historical event with a conference that the city might be able to take part in as well, to acknowledge at an official capacity. So we did that. Um, and I'm so glad that Jim got to take part in that because unfortunately he passed away a year later. But as you can see, here he is holding up this paper right here that has the Aurora story within the very center. Um, and we got to share this type of, uh, you know, celebrated uh, event with about 400 people at the building's capacity and one of the only buildings that could house that many people um, and host this wonderful event that we did back in 2016 to really try to bring forward anyone from the woodwork that had any information about this, which we got quite a few. Some people said, you know what? I remember seeing that mystery metal. So-and-so had it down the street in a shoebox. I remember having it here. I remember my, the old timers would tell us about it. So working with the city at that time, it was uh, still very divided, even all these years later. And people who lived out there, out in the country pretty much, are living out there probably because they either had their family had been there forever or they went out to get away from the noise of the city and to be bothered by people otherwise who wanted to know about the alien in that grave or that spaceship crash mm -hmm. and all of these things. So the challenge was finding anyone who was really interested in opening up about it who had not only been sincere, but maybe some kind of way to corroborate any of these incredible claims. So as you can see here, this that is a, a picture of the original crash site where the windmill would have been, where the well house, water tower, and the well is today. The well is about the only remaining thing. We held the event and it, it was uh, enough for the city to generate um, a little bit of uh, interest in, in funding by way of uh, the historical society there to put together a city monument that has the new stylized city logo which has a um, not a cigar shaped object but a flying saucer and a windmill um, and the thing is that historically speaking it might not have actually been a windmill as we think in in our standard today but more like a windless or a um a derrick which would have been like a tower that worked with a sump um, to help generate uh, water current for the well. Now, mm. because of the iconography of the flying saucer and a windmill, it's easier for people to recognize it. So they have this uh, at the uh, foothold, the basin of this uh, crash site, they have the monument and they have a downed spaceship with a mock-up windmill and a little alien. And, uh, and so they had a little dummy there at City Hall, which uh, the city admin having been a local growing up there, one of the old timers names was Ned. So she has this little dummy alien who was sort of the mascot there who we called Ned. And she was generous enough to let me wheel him around uh, and take him on tour, so to speak. And so Ned got a lot of notoriety, a lot of events. Um, he was a lot of fun. I took him to a lot of different things like Alien Con and Area 51 and just everywhere. Um, and he was the you know highlight of the show. Here he is at his own grave on one of the anniversaries. And of course he's in a wheelchair because he was in a bad wreck. So, you know, it only makes sense that, you know, he's, uh, you know, situated like that. But the fun thing was, is that it, it gave some, uh, you know, way for people to, to see a face uh, to the name of the town. Cause that's, again, people would always say, you know, I heard about that alien grave or I heard about that windmill UFO crash or something. So people throughout the years knew bits and pieces, but maybe not the whole story. And so now, in more recent times, uh, the city, we tried to do another event. It really just didn't happen. There had been a lot of uh, conflict in the city about the whole thing, even now. And uh, because of that, we weren't able to do another city event. But I had held uh, meetups and tours uh, in the last several years that got a lot of attention as well. We had about 100 people show up for some of these meetups. And in doing so... One of the one of the the guests that we had come out was a lawyer from Dallas who offered a reward for the original headstone or any whereabouts of it. 
Um, and it started out as being like a thousand dollar reward and it went up to like 2,500. Now I think it's like at $5,000. So that's a very real thing for anyone. I don't know that it's actually going to come up, but if anyone has any uh, information about the original headstone, which I've had someone tell me that they know where it is. Um, so it very well could be out there, whether it was real or not. Um, and as you can see here, we are at that monument there at the foothold of the crash site. And uh, it's right off the highway. Uh, which is Highway 114. And so because of that interest, the city threw together a little what they called a party patio, which they dubbed Area 114. And so to have some fun with it, because this, this city is such a small little place, they don't really have any commerce or much industry at all. They threw together some little businesses. One of them was called Martian Margaritas and another was Smoking Windmill Barbecue they're on this party patio where they would have live music and uh, a bunch of cool things they even came up with uh, uh their own brewed ale called the alien ale and uh it's, mm -hmm. it was a limited run there's not any more ever um and unfortunately getting into the last literally the last year um i went up there with a, a news team that was interested mm -hmm. in doing a story because of at the time what would have been the upcoming uh report on the UAP issue within the government and the transparency being provided by what was going to be come to be known as the uh, the preliminary assessment, right? Which talks about the UAP task force and all of this stuff, which right. now is still actually um, underway and is doing a lot now. We went up there at the time and everything seemed fine. I actually saw the city admin up there. A month later, I found out that the city hall burned down, that unfortunately there had been a lot of um, uh, huge fraud and and theft monetarily in the city from from the city administration and that uh, unfortunately it seems like ned burned down with the city hall um and that property the area 114 party patio has now been acquired by the county and likely to be auctioned off um and it's such a weird tragic twist to the whole thing yeah. Uh, because the city admin was a big proponent of the story and getting the the knowledge out there and just to be able to kind of help us with the event was really cool. Um, stealing uh, possibly a million or more dollars is not very cool. And a lot of people don't think so either. Um, and so now that unfortunately, hopefully doesn't overshadow the fun legend that is the story of this Aurora crash. But I think that what's happened in more recent times. And I was there on the anniversary back in April to do um, a live stream feed of the site and going over to the grave site, doing a little bit of metal detecting over the grave and getting some pings of what very well could be some of that mystery metal and alien body. So I think that while there may be something there in the grave, I don't really know what it is. And while the whole thing may have been concocted as a hoax to drive in tourism to the town, it very well could have been something that actually happened to be a very real crash case from the 1890s. And uh, what's really interesting is that Jim Mars thought it was, as he said, and in that conference, the smoking gun of UFOs. And I'd like to think that that very well is the case, but I'm not too sure. And I'd like to say that there could be some other ways to follow up. There's the city logo. It's still there. I hope that the city doesn't tear that down because of this recent mishap with mismanagement. Mm. But my efforts to chronicle the history of this are within this publication that I've been working on. And I'd like to share that it's not just showcasing one side to say, believe it, it happened, but mm -hmm. to also show that there have been many detractors. A lot of people have been very dismissive of the whole thing from the beginning. And I think there's good reason for that because we have to have a degree of skepticism when it comes to very sensational stories that otherwise, you know, sound wonderful, sound amazing, but aren't necessarily to be, I think, taken at face value because as an investigator and as a researcher and reporter, we need to do better than just to go with or take the word for or do whatever, you know, just based on uh, something that sounds fun or good or believable. But maybe there are ways to still cooperate based upon not just the historical testimony, not just the uh, trace evidence of metal embedded within the crash site, not just the uh, the allegations of the effects by the the, the poisoned or affected water from the Brawleys uh, or the Oates family, Brawley Oates specifically. Um, the corroboration of what the city admin said was recorded in the, the minutes of the Masons of the local lodge. 
I think that there are a lot of contributing factors that if you took into a court of law, you could put to, before a, a, a jury and say, this is a pretty convincing case, but that doesn't necessarily mean that it'll hold up in a, a, a laboratory setting that's uh, demonstrable. So some of the metal has been tested over the years. They found high traces of aluminum and zinc, which were not uh, widely available in the 1890s. That's curious to say the least. And if there's anything left in that grave, would it still be testable today? And I think that there could be some non-invasive ways to try to figure that out. And I'm very interested in that. It's helped to springboard my interest in anthropology and archaeology and this sort of new study of what we can refer to as xenology coming out of the fringe <laughs> of science fiction into more of the forefront of actual science. You know, So I think that it's really cool to see that, as you can see here, on this historical marker, it talks about it. It says this site is also well known because of the legend that a spaceship crashed nearby in 1897 and the pilot killed in the crash was buried here. That's right there at the Roar Cemetery. Anyone can go see it at any time. And I think that's super cool because it's the only historical marker probably um, that says something about this in this kind of context. Now, there are other stories that relate to this sort of situation, the Cape Girard and these other types of uh, alien encounters. But with how far this predates everything, and, and not to mention the curious notion of the Roswell debris being taken pretty much right over into this area of Fort Worth in 47, I find that really an interesting connection. Over uh, you know, half a century later, you have another, probably the best well-known, most popular UFO and crash case of all of history, Roswell, to be associated with this Aurora story because of the proximity of the location of which the Roswell debris was taken before probably uh, also being taken up to Wright-Patterson in Dayton, Ohio. So a lot of mm -hmm. interesting connections here. There's so much I think we would still learn about what we're looking for by way of evidence when it comes to modern ufology and our understanding of what we're now calling UAP and all of these things. We're trying to find hard evidence of mystery metals. We're trying to find more than just anomalous objects in the sky. We're trying to understand occupants or the intelligence behind these uh, objects. And we're trying to find maybe a way of communication, which obviously, you know, is going to be a, a really groundbreaking thing for us to even come across. And we're trying to also figure out how it relates to our own uh, history of humanity. With all of these things, we see that embedded within this legend. And I like to call it a legend because essentially that's what it is. We see all of these different aspects embedded within the legend of Aurora. And I find that fascinating. So that there you have it. That's the story of the Aurora 1897 case that I think uh, you know has still stood the test of time. I'm very fascinated with it. I live nearby and it's a fun place to be able to go to see the historical marker, to see the monument and maybe to see if there's something that we can still learn that can help us with what we're dealing with in this uh, modern you know, outlook that we have now. Uh, yeah, I want to thank uh, Nancy, Malcolm, and Peace for their donations. It's much appreciated. You know, um, how, much, how much fact do you think is involved with this so-called legend? Do you think there, there really was something that happened? It may not be exactly what the this the story is but uh do you think there is a possibility that something remarkable happened there i think that the the weight of the evidence would indicate that something did happen in mm -hmm. the form of metallic dispersion um mm -hmm. what i mean specifically by that is that the 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 investigations that not only i have done the minimal work that i've done in the field but on the mountains uh, of, of evidence and anecdotes discovered by Jim Mars, by John Schusler, by MUFON, by the International UFO Bureau, by other independent investigators that, that show that not only had there been significant uh, eyewitness testimony and an allegation as far as something having occurred that would indicate an aerial object, aerial objects, one, Crash would be the second. Uh, collection of debris would be the third thing. Uh, the The eyewitness testimony for a body is very difficult to track down, but you do have sure. testimony about people moving graves and burial. So that definitely is the case that we did find something in the gravesite. Whether there's an alien or not, 
We don't know. Someone might, but I don't know that we do. But there definitely seemed to be the ground penetrating radar that indicated something in the grave. You do have this recorded in the minutes of the Masons and the local Masonic Lodge. That's at least five good valid points that I would say could sit uh, again in a court of law and and be outweighed with uh, the the other issue of it having been a hoax. I think that something could be shown that, uh, like you said, if it's if it's factual, then it's hard to really debate that there wasn't a well, for instance, when we know that there is. Some people debated that Judge Proctor never had a well, but they but recent investigations found that there was a base for, uh, or a windmill, I should say. Some people say that Judge Proctor never had a windmill. Well, we know that that isn't really the case because they found the base for what would have been a well uh, mm-hmm. or a windmill connected to a well house. So these are facts. Um, and then we know that there was a grave site with an unknown marker for something. That's a fact. What's in the grave, it could be an alien. If I said an alien is in the grave, I don't know that that's a fact, but we do know that something's down there. Um, mm-hmm. I would say that the discovery of, of, of molten or uh, hardened alloy embedded in the ground and in the trees, that's a fact. Discovering a high concentration of aluminum in this metal, that's also a fact. Um, to show that the proximity in which the this has significance in another, probably the best widely known UFO case, Roswell, uh, mm-hmm. the debris taken from Roswell also taken extremely nearby Aurora to the Carswell, uh, Carswell Army Airfield, that's mm-hmm. a fact. Um, and whether there's any strong correlation or not, uh, not to really just seek out confirmation bias with anything. I, I try to find also ways to, to throw this all out and say it very well could have been a hoax. Um, was there an Aurora newspaper? That's really hard to track down. Even looking into the historical records, right? there's little to go off of. Um, mm. is there, are there people who were alive at the time who claimed that it did happen? Yes, that is a fact. Are there people who were mm. alive at the time who claimed it did not happen? Yes, that is also a fact. That has been documented. That's in the historical record. Um, these things can be shown to, I think, uh, sway opinion. And that's what I'm trying to not really do. I'm not really trying to say, uh, you know, as many people might to say, now it's up to you to make up your mind whether it happened or not. I don't think that it, it works that way. I mean, if it happened, it didn't happen. If it didn't, it didn't, whether you want it to or not. Obviously not you, Lon, or your listeners, but anyone, I think, who kind of gives the impression that here's the evidence now make up your mind that's kind of how a jury works unfortunately it's not the same as a scientific method um and i i think that that's really where we're challenged is that people say this is the real deal oh i i believe it i know what happens some people they they do um more metaphysically oriented practices in an attempt to gain information who claim that this is the real deal some people say that no there's no indication that because of the you know, the ways that we can document and corroborate stories and claims mm-hmm. that it shows that this didn't happen. So I think that, unfortunately, it's still very divided um, halfway down. And I'd like to really say that with what all we can find and until maybe there's a better way to ascertain information, it'll continue to be a legend. And I'm not trying to sway people's opinion either way because that's not going to change the fact that whether you believe it or not, is going to make it having, uh, you know, any more evidence or not. I think that we just have to make sure that however we're going about investigating this case has to be done from a neutral, unbiased standpoint. And hey, as much as I like it, as much as I have all the memorabilia that I can about this, (laughs) there's so many books about it. Um, You know, there's so many different fun things about it. I think it's awesome. I like to encourage that, but I also have to keep that in check with, my own outlook by saying, you know, we have to be reasonable about this. There's no reason we should just outright believe it again at face value, but we need to make sure we're doing what we can as, as researchers, as investigators and using our discernment to make sense of these extraordinary claims. And as Carl Sagan said, you know, extraordinary claims require extraordinary evidence. That's the Sagan standard. And, you know, Mm -hmm. he was a proponent of extraterrestrial life more than probably most people in the scientific community is definitely the probably the biggest proponent and popularizer of these ideas. 
even though people are dismissive of him and say he was a, you know, he just poo-pooed it all and all this. I think that, you know, okay, sure. But he made a lot of valid points too. I think that it's important to consider that while there's a lot of uh, dismissing of this case as just historical hoaxing, that's mm-hmm. an important part to play in the overall history, which I'm just trying to show that there is a great deal of history, however you look at it. So I'd say that there are hard facts, but anyone that tells you that they know for certain that there's something down there, um, I would be wary of that. And, you know, I like to entertain ideas and be open-minded about things, but probably admittedly being probably the closest person to this case at this point with uh, the involvement that I have and, and sort of inheriting much of Jim's work, my, my buddy, the late Jim Mars, I, I really miss him. I think about him all the time. I, I'm glad to see the work that he did uh, helped to contribute and, and was meaningful enough to make sense of the things that um, I think we can still use today. Um, he, was, he had a lot of integrity when it came to investigating otherwise very challenging situations, um, not even UFOs, but all kinds of things. And I, I'm glad to see that he was interested, but not only that, he lived nearby. And so we got to mm-hmm. go on several occasions. And I think that there's still something we can learn about this case. So there are definitely facts. There are definitely sensationalized claims. Um, and there's definitely some fun to be had in it, too. And I think it's okay to, to see it in all of those ways. Well, I tell you, I hope you do get more information uh, that where you can actually get some more evidence. And uh, even though it may be anecdotal, I, I hope you, you do find out more and add to the story. Um, uh, how about telling the folks how they can get in contact with you and, uh, you know, any other things you want to tell about your book? Yeah, uh, sure. I am really, uh, you know, interested in a number of different subjects and, and areas of interest and study that I find, you know, if I can get out in the field, if I can connect with people like you guys and, and really just figure out what's going on and make the little bit of contribution that I can into this meaningful work. Um, I do a lot of that through my media, through my video interviews, through my on-location segments and full presentation um, format on the YouTube channel, The Vortex, as Mm -hmm. you can see here. That's, again, you can just find on YouTube. And I have a lot of uh, ways to get a hold of me on social media, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, things like that. Um, I'm always interested in finding out anything I can about the Aurora story, um, wherever or however it's been um, embedded in any newspaper, in any magazine, in any news article, in any video, any show, podcast, anything. Here we are at the 125th anniversary earlier this year, right there at the cemetery. Um, I'm interested in hearing people's thoughts, their theories um, to also include in this work, because again, it's a chronology. I am just chronicling all the ways that this story has been shown to be of interest um, in any form of media. And obviously that has uh, become more and more exponential in the last decade. I mean, we we had a great time uh, in uh, the early 2000s with trying to make sense of this uh, event. And then since all of that, I mean, in the advent of YouTube and podcasting, it's all over the place. And so it's yeah. more widespread than ever. And so I'm trying to do what I can to include every way that that's been shared and embedded into pop culture and everything and even shows like this and this one specifically will be included in that publication so you know i think that for anyone who's interested in continuing the discussion i'm uh, very accessible i'm very easy to get a hold of there's the artwork i threw together as i mentioned at the beginning uh, very much inspired by the the realism of the artwork of sam sheeran and and many others that I think are, are a lot of fun. So it's supposed to be very dramatic. You can see the crashing of the cylindrical cigar-shaped object into the windmill with the water tower and the well. There's Ned, the alien, in pieces. He's exploding. You can see his papers with the strange writings. And, you know, I just wanted to make it a very dramatic, over-the-top depiction, um, you know, because to me that's that's cool. I like artwork. It's fun. But it's also sort of, a, you know, just supposed to be based upon the claims within the legend itself. So I'd be glad to connect with anyone on whatever it is that they're interested in. I have a lot of other areas that I try to focus on as well. Just like you guys cover a number of interesting topics. I 
do what I can to kind of keep up with all of that too. And I'm involved with a lot of events and I think it's a great way for people to connect together with other like-minded people, to network, to share their thoughts. And you know, you guys are doing a great job of providing a supportive network for people to share otherwise extremely, what most people would call like a bizarre encounter of some sort. So I'm thankful that you, uh, you Lon and uh, Vincent and, and you know, everyone, that's a part of the team here listening and just being able to kind of uh, keep this going in a way that I think uh, is a great job. And uh, so I, I definitely commend you guys for keeping up the good work. And, uh, you know, I, I hope to be able to just uh, continue to do the little that I can um, to, you know, be involved. In. And so I'm just, uh, I'm, I'm glad to, to be around and, you know, it's just, it's always a good time. So really appreciate your uh, inviting me onto the show. Well, Daniel, it's great having you on here, and I appreciate you coming on and telling us about this legend. And uh, we'll have to have you come back again uh, and uh, see if you uh, talk about some of your other adventures and uh, investigations. And, uh, yeah, so you have a good weekend, and we'll be talking to you soon. Sounds great. Same with you guys, and we'll see you. And the Take care. Uh, now, if you have an unexplained encounter or sighting, feel free to contact me through the Fams of Monsters blog site. And I want to again thank uh, Daniel Allen Jones for joining me this evening. And thanks to each and all of you for watching and chatting. If you made a super chat donation, it's very much appreciated. Your support is what makes this all possible. So please like, subscribe, and share. Uh, if you have a sighting or encounter report that you'd like to be considered for the personal report show or uh, post to the Fams of Monsters, feel free to forward to me at lonstrickler.famsofmonsters.com. So next week, we will present a Dogman Upright Canine Roundtable. Uh, we're still working on the guest list, but be assured it's going to be an interesting conversation. So uh, make sure to join us next Friday. And until then, stay healthy and have a safe, enjoyable weekend. Good night.